Welcome back to Art Holes. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the Art History Podcast with someone who has zero background in art history. It's an odd premise to have to explain to people, and I don't have a good answer for when they inevitably ask the follow-up question of why. I have a quick correction from last episode before we get going. Uh, not a correction, an addendum, I guess. My sister reminded me that in addition to my taping over the only copy of our parents' wedding video, I also taped over her senior prom video. I don't remember if I taped over that family memory with that late-night Cinemax softcore porn. She doesn't remember either. If I had to guess, I'd say maybe? She brought the question to the rest of the family to see what they recalled, because one of my family's favorite games to play is Remember the Time Michael Did That Embarrassing Thing, and then everybody gets to laugh again. It's one of the few holiday traditions we have. Nobody remembers if it indeed was more bootlegged Cinemax porn, though my dad said most likely. Thanks, Dad. I'm realizing that telling embarrassing stories is a really good emotional safety valve to cope with what's going on in this story. This episode most of all. We ended last episode on a bit of a high note, more, more or less. It felt pretty good to have an entire episode when a major tragedy didn't befall a person, group, or an entire culture. That whole approach of taking a moment to sit and appreciate the good times in this story, we can't do that anymore. Don't get me wrong, there will be great and ridiculous moments. It becomes an issue of the frequency at which things are thrown at us. We'd get bogged down. So as a blanket statement moving forward, if the story feels even sort of good, it's one of the good times. So let's just get right back into it. We'll have to deal with what happens after as it comes. Following the accident, Frida healed enough to at least explore the idea of a new life. It's a life that brought her a potential new career as an artist, and it introduced her to the man she knew she wanted to marry since she saw him. I don't get it personally, but Diego's magnetism was apparently legendary. We're going to get to know Diego quite a bit better over the next hour and change. His quirks, his eccentricities, relationship non-negotiables. It's a real Diego-heavy episode. This is the period of Frida's life where, I would say more so than any other time, she becomes a passenger in her own story. She's a wife. Before anything else, Diego Rivera's young wife. After those first few emotionally complicated days after the wedding, Frida moved into Diego's house at Reforma 104. I can only imagine how excited she is to be somewhere besides one of the sadder houses she's ever seen that might not contain the best memories. Her life is changing drastically. Diego's house at 104 Reforma is in the middle of everything in Mexico City, and they aren't living there alone. We went from a small village on the outskirts of town to a thoroughfare of people both in and outside the house. When Frida moved in, she was joined by a bunch of new roommates, like college, except you're married. That honestly sounds dreadful, but given how this marriage started, it could be a good thing. Who knows? There was David Alfaro Siqueiros, one of the three Mexican muralists, his wife Blanca, as well as two other members of the Communist Party. Having so many random adults live in one house wasn't that crazy for the time. Back then, people used to take on boarders at the house if they could, sometimes complete strangers. It helped with the bills, it was neighborly or some nonsense. I personally think this is wildly irresponsible. This appears to be before people knew about murder or perverts and presumably how they learned. If you listen to the Pollock series, there were a few Sakaros anecdotes that we briefly learned about, and I didn't get too far into them because they would have gotten us off track. And he's not a pervert or anything, that was kind of a weird transition. He's actually not a murderer either, but not for lack of trying. There was a machine gun, and we'll get into it. 
104 Reforma had become a central hub, a meeting place, a quasi-hotel, a party spot, full of friends, political allies, lots of drinking. It was like living a Tino Modotti party every night. This is my nightmare, and it sounds exhausting. The house itself was big, with more than enough room for such a cast of characters. It was colonial in style, with a French Gothic facade, built during the Diaz regime, and there was at least one live-in maid. At first glance, this doesn't seem like the house of an avowed communist or ally of the emergence of Amerindian culture. As soon as you walk into the house, you see Diego's enormous collection of pre-Columbian figures and idols. Okay, getting better, in appreciation for the country's rich heritage, until you remember that they were paid for by taking commissions from the government. A government with a grip on the nation's wealth that people are still desperately trying to loosen. When viewed through a certain lens, Diego's image is a failure to portray himself as fighting for income inequality and wealth distribution, something very much noticed by other party members. These types of massive, systemic wealth and power redistributions that the Communist Party, Frida, Diego, everyone's fighting for, they tend to be a slow, grinding, and dirty process because of how quickly friends are turned into enemies. If you have a system where 10% of the people control more or less everything, and 90% aren't doing so hot, as soon as those numbers shift and wealth and power are redistributed, you have a new group of people with an inherent self-interest in trying to protect what they now have. So as soon as somebody behaves even remotely protectionist of their new position or source of income, even if they're just trying to make sure they can pay the bills the next month, they're easily painted, no pun intended, as being part of the establishment now. They become ideological targets themselves. The Mexican muralism movement really hit its peak in the first two years, when it was new and exciting, it had novelty, and it felt like everyone was on the same page. Eventually, though, there was a bit of a conservative backlash against the murals, their underlying message, the political pendulum was swinging back a bit. Some murals were defaced, there were protests at their unveilings, there's still a lot of support from ardent believers, only now there's a groundswell of open and public criticism. Communist Party members began to question whether it was slightly hypocritical or even counterproductive for an artist to be paid by the government to paint murals, and to negotiate with that government as to the content of the mural in exchange for a substantial amount of cash. These negotiations include everything from the theme of the painting itself to what images can or can't be included. Don't paint anything that will promote violence because nobody wants violence, right? Okay, so don't paint that thing. Maybe don't include a depiction of some guy because of X, Y, or Z. He's in the way of a new trade deal that benefits everybody, and he needs to be sidelined, not turned into a symbol. Who knows? By making too many artistic concessions, at a certain juncture it begins to look like you're taking a bribe and sacrificing your own creative integrity. So Diego's getting strategically attacked more and more by the left-leaning factions of the party because he's making a ton of money painting murals paid by the government with negotiated terms. Put another way, he's being a Malinchista. I'm not saying he is one, I'm saying you could start to construct that argument and he's not helping his own cause. The other two of the Tres Grandes, Orozco and Siqueiros, they were phased out of the movement as it began to cool off, making Diego an easier target as the last of the three who was still consistently up on the scaffolds on government projects. In and of itself, this is a messaging issue more than anything, and it's not an insurmountable problem for his position within the Communist Party, until we take into account the fact that he was a terrible party leader. 
He was constantly late to meetings, obnoxiously late. He's the, oh, I'm sorry, I got held up, my stuff is just more important than yours guy. Nobody likes that guy. And when he got to the meetings, he annoyed the hell out of everybody by trying to dominate the meetings with his personality. Diego Rivera unified a people and a nation, and he also happened to be kind of a douche. He's both things. It's a tough time to be getting married right now. Frida's role in this moment, whether we like it or not, is not to paint, and she won't paint for a number of months. It's to be a supportive wife to Diego, who is working such long hours on murals in the Ministry of Public Education and the Ministry of Health Buildings that he's falling asleep on the scaffolding and tumbling off onto the ground. This is quite the change from what life was like before and what Frida's life was supposed to be. She was supposed to be a doctor. She doesn't know how to be a homemaker. Those lessons from Matilda were for her sisters. Frida was a nerd, a proud nerd. Her favorite book to read when she was younger was a fictionalized biography of the 15th century Florentine painter and mathematician Paolo Uccello, who was famous for revolutionizing perspective in paintings. Now, she takes a look at her life and realizes she's taking care of this giant man-baby who's falling off the sides of buildings, and it's about to get worse. About a month after they get married, Diego falls seriously ill from exhaustion, and now Frida's trying to take care of him and convince him to listen to doctor's orders. He clearly sucked at doing that, so now nobody in the house is painting. And if there's one thing we know about people, when there's crisis, they see opportunity. And the more left-leaning, Stalinist faction of the Communist Party in Mexico, the ideological purists who wanted to mirror Stalin's application of Lenin's theories for Mexico, they recognized an opportunity and seized on this period of weakness and decided it was time. Diego is making too many mistakes. It's as simple as that, and he's annoying everybody and was thought to be too right-wing to accomplish anything of value. With that, they took someone who loved the cause more than food, sleep, probably not as much as sex, but close, and the Communist Party of Mexico had enough of his conduct and decided to kick Diego out. On October 3rd, 1929, Diego Rivera was formally exiled from the Communist Party of Mexico by the General Secretary himself. He had to kick himself out. It's a strange and dorky ceremony. He arrived at the meeting, took out a ceremonial clay pistol and placed it on the table, put a handkerchief over the clay pistol and said to everybody in the room, quote, I, Diego Rivera, General Secretary of the Mexican Communist Party, accuse the painter, Diego Rivera, of collaborating with the petite bourgeois government of Mexico and having accepted a commission to paint the stairway of the National Palace of Mexico. This contradicts the politics of the Comintern, and therefore the painter, Diego Rivera, should be expelled from the Communist Party by the General Secretary of the Communist Party, Diego Rivera, unquote. He then picked up the clay pistol, smashed it, and walked out, utterly embarrassed, and in a show of support for her husband, free to quit right after. Without those connections to the Communist Party, a huge segment of Frida's support structure and her friends are cut out from her life. A lot of people turn their back on the Riveras. They were kind of persona non grata right now. They'll eventually make their way back into the fold, both informally and then formally. It's like an on-again, off-again relationship, but she doesn't know that right now. Frida's trying to figure out how to be a wife, how to keep Diego alive and somewhat functional. He's irritable all the time and she can't seem to get through to him. 
Soon after the expulsion, Lupe Marin, Diego's ex-wife and one of the world's worst wedding guests, comes to visit the house. She takes one look around and saw the state of chaos and everybody stressed out. Diego's yelling, bah, 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 I had to kick myself out. Lupe knows how he can get. You don't think she's seen the worst of him? Strange people are living there. And she takes a look at Frida and realizes she's just a child and a lost one at that. Many people will say that about Frida throughout the years. She's all personality and bravado and seems like the winds of the world are always at her back. And then you see her in true crisis or pain, and she looks like a child. So Lupe sees what's happening, and she gathers Frida up and takes her to the La Merced market. Lupe's going to help straighten some of the stuff out. They bought kitchen supplies, pots and pans. Lupe taught Frida how to cook the food Diego likes, helped Frida understand that she can be the most supportive of him by spending time with him on the scaffolds. She taught Frida how to prepare his lunch, and this is crucial. You can't screw this up with his favorite foods placed lovingly in a basket decorated with wildflowers and napkins that have supportive sayings and phrases like, quote, I adore you. All this nonsense is real. He needed this to have a pleasant afternoon and get work done. Ignoring the obvious question of whether catering to every one of Diego's wants and needs is helping him build his character, it's not, but we're ignoring that question, you have someone in Lupe willing to face the embarrassment and the guilt and admit her emotional outburst towards Frida at the wedding was maybe misplaced. And even having acknowledged that, taking the extra steps to help your ex-husband's struggling new wife get over the learning curve of living with a giant man-baby who needs I-love-you napkins in flowered baskets, otherwise he's a nightmare to live with, knowing that you could have the satisfaction and revenge of watching her struggle to figure that out. It takes a much bigger person than I am to be doing what Lupe is doing right here, and the same type of person to be able to accept that. Frida not only accepted the gesture and the help, she painted Lupe's portrait for her. This will be one of the major ways Frida lets people know that they were important to her in her life, by painting their portrait. And sadly, Frida's 1929 painting of Lupe didn't survive. We only have a black and white photo of the painting, which I'll include in this episode's post. Sometime down the road, Lupe gets really pissed at Frida and cuts up the portrait with scissors, and that's why it's gone. It's something Lupe's grandson said even late in life she profoundly regretted. Being a friend of Frida's may have been rewarding mostly, but it wasn't always easy. Frida can be a lot sometimes. Lupe's marital assistance couldn't have come at a better time. Government mural commissions were now few and far between, and without that publicity, private commissions are drying up. It's a serious problem for somebody, and a couple now, who have a lot of expenditures and live a big life. Now that they're both out of the Communist Party, Diego has a little more flexibility to test out some of his communist theories and their integration with art, which just so happens to coincide with business opportunities. Who's he going to piss off now? They can't kick him out again. He can really lean into some of his beliefs that there's value in exporting communism abroad to capitalist countries, even if the job isn't done at home, going after the bigger enemies next door and attacking industrialization at its source. It's a debate that boils down to the best use of people's resources intertwined with the debate on effective placement of art based on political optics and psychology. It's, it's, it's how to maximize the impact of a mural painting according to how many people see it and who those people are. 
He dips his toes in these theoretical waters and accompanying financial opportunities by accepting a commission to paint a mural in Cuernavaca, a small city about 50 or so miles south of Mexico City. Cuernavaca is south enough and at a low enough elevation on the central plateau to have a warmer and more tropical climate. It served as the weekend getaway spot for people all the way back to the Aztec royalty who used to travel there for some relaxation time. It is a city steeped in history, including being the location of the Cortez Palace. And we haven't talked about that asshole in quite a bit. The evil 12-year-old stumbling around in armor that's too big for him, screaming at people that his bath water isn't hot enough. Hernan Cortez had this palace, more of a fortress really, built on the ashes of an Aztec public center he had ordered destroyed. The palace was used as a fortified home for Cortez and his second wife, Juana Zuniga, the one he married after he murdered the first, Catalina Suarez. Cortez Palace needed to serve as a military fort as much as it was a house because after Cortez conquered and murdered a bunch of people, the friends and family that survived weren't big fans of his, and they tried to kill Cortez really whenever humanly possible. There wasn't an assassination attempt not worth trying or at least planning. He really brought out the creativity in people. The fort served its purpose and kept Cortez and the family safe until they lost the home due to some legal and financial issues. Over the years, it was abandoned, refurbished, was a prison during the Mexican War for Independence, and by the time Diego was commissioned to paint a mural, it was the government building for the state of Morelos. In December 1929, Frida and Diego attended a fancy, highbrow dinner where the terms of the Cortez Palace murals were negotiated. While people chatted and Frida charmed everyone, Diego negotiated the terms of the mural with, you would imagine it would be somebody within the federal Mexican government, or a Morello state official, someone at least Mexican, or at least someone who really digs Mexican food. Nope. Instead, he negotiated terms with the American ambassador to Mexico, Dwight W. Morrow, from New Jersey. The topics of the mural were agreed to. The images would be, in one part, Emilio Zapata gloriously leading men to battle during the Mexican Revolution, and another, the horrors of the Spanish conquest. Think about what's happening here. The whole situation. The Hernan Cortez Palace murals that were to be painted by Diego Rivera with the support of Frida Kahlo about the Spanish conquest and the Mexican Revolution. Quite possibly the most concentrated dose of Mexican history all in one place we've had. Straight to the face. And I don't know how this came to be or why he was involved. All of that was negotiated by a white guy named Dwight. I grew up on a farm. I have seen animals having sex in every position imaginable. Goat on chicken, chicken on goat, couple of chickens doing a goat, couple of pigs watching. Though to be fair, this was the same American ambassador who convinced the Mexican government to alter an oil rights agreement to give more profits to investors in America, was at one point the senator from New Jersey, and as a partner at J.P. Morgan, became the richest man in the entire state of New Jersey. So I guess anything is possible when you crave money and power. This is how ingrained and systemic foreign interference was in Mexico. There's not a fleet of ships and the French army blowing a guy's leg off over pastries. It's a subtle white noise of interference. It's, it's rich guys from New Jersey named Dwight. 
The systemic aspects are the hardest to remove due to the complex competing interests and the fact that the trade-offs can be hard to identify. We don't know where this negotiation even started. What if Diego's first idea was to paint, and I'm not saying this is or is not historically accurate as a perspective. On one side, Mexico getting forced into the Mexican-American War during that skirmish by the disputed border, an American military commander ordering a small but just large enough to be perceived as a threat group of men against thousands of Mexican soldiers. And on the other side, Mexico getting screwed out of land with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And that's all hypothetical, but there are some powerful themes that can potentially be negotiated away. No matter how the whole thing went down, the very existence of this commission is a giant target for the Communist Party to criticize Diego for agreeing to, the notable location and it being negotiated by Dwight. Whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. Diego, he's banking on the fact that there's going to be a larger social benefit. Plus, he's out of the party now after that weird clay gun ceremony. He can test the ideas that it's easier to work with Dwight from New Jersey and fight from within. Down in Cuernavaca, while Diego planned his murals and Frida began to make up their temporary home for the next many months, their slightly delayed honeymoon began. Their routine mostly continued as it was when they were home, with Diego working long hours and Frida bringing him baskets of food with flowers and supportive handwritten notes, something that gets more depressing every time I have to say it. If she wasn't on the scaffolds, Frida would explore the city, wandering through the markets, talking to the business owners, and looking at the banana trees and the beautiful gardens. She was having fun. When she was helping Diego with the mural, she learned how to convince him of good ideas and back off when he wasn't budging on an issue. While sketching out the mural, he decided he wanted to paint Zapata's horse white. And Frida said that was dumb because everybody knows the horse was black. But Diego responded by saying, the people deserve beautiful things. So the horse ended up being white. But when she made fun of him for how squat and goofy looking the sketch of the horse's legs were, he tossed her the sketchbook and said, okay, you draw them. So she did and Diego reluctantly agreed the new version was better and made the change. He had a really difficult time with the legs. He just couldn't figure them out. While you can imagine, Frida might be a bit more sensitive to the size and shape of legs. Because they were close to Mexico City at a cool weekend resort town, they would get extended visits from people like Luis Cardoza, who was an art historian, writer, and diplomat. Cardoza was currently in self-imposed exile from Guatemala. I have no idea why, and he stayed with them for quite a while. And whether it be Cardoza or whatever bohemian artist intellectual or dignitary was visiting, there was a routine that orbited around Diego's schedule. That person and Frida would sleep in and then have a late breakfast long after Diego went to work. They would bring Diego his lunch and then wander the city, go shopping, and hang out with the locals. As soon as the sun went down, they'd pick Diego up from work, all go to dinner and order a bottle of tequila to start. Once he got a bunch of tequilas in him, Diego got in with the outlandish stories and tequila dinner turned into an after party at the house, where the monster, the name Diego himself gave to his drunk storytelling alter ego, that's when the monster came out, until Frida couldn't play hostess anymore, gave up, and went to bed. One week after the historian Luis Cardoza left Cuernavaca, he wrote, quote, Frida was grace, energy, and talent, united into one of the beings who has most stirred my imagination to enthusiasm. Unquote. 
No one has ever said anything approaching something like that about me. I'd settle for, he's less of a dick than he used to be. And Cordoza's correct. It does take grace and energy to deal with the realities of life married to Diego, the good and the bad. He was supportive of Frida artistically, was brilliant and passionate, and really loved her, to the extent he was able to love anyone. On the other hand, he dominated every room he was in, particularly when the monster came out, was often irritable, demanding, and unforgiving of mistakes that weren't his own. Lately, he was also spending entirely too much time disappearing with his young and exceedingly good-looking American assistant, Ione Robinson, who Frida referred to as, quote, that awful wench. It's not easy to hear about your husband's affair with his assistant so soon after you get married. I don't know that it's ever easy to hear that, though these types of rumors cut deeper if you hear them after you find out that you're pregnant. No matter what that news means to you, planned or unplanned, the moment you realize you're pregnant, I would imagine that's an emotionally charged moment, a moment that changes you. Everything is different. This, this moment is what Frida wanted since she met Diego and made that other old man fall down a flight of stairs. The big unknown, besides how Diego will take the news, is if Frida is even physically capable of carrying a child to term without it killing her, or at minimum without significant danger to her spine or pelvis. A cesarean section was an option if Frida was able to survive the nine months, was able to go through the risks of a major surgery at the end, and then survive the recovery. Doctors were uncertain how safe a pregnancy would be, and Frida was getting, and will continue to get, drastically conflicting medical advice on the issue. After three months, due to a mix of health issues for both her and the fetus, Frida had to get an abortion, and she was shattered. The doctor told Frida that she would never be healthy enough to carry a child to term without a high risk of one of them dying, and finally hit with this reality, she cried inconsolably. She would often tell people that she didn't want kids. That wasn't true. Frida wanted to be a mother and have a bunch of her and Diego's kids running around the house, and that dream had just been taken away. As demoralizing as this was, she survived worse, and this too will pass with time. The only thing she can do now is distract herself and keep busy, clean around the house, dedicate herself even more to Diego and his work, and she'll even begin to develop her own sense of style and experiment with that. It's something to focus her emotional energy on. One of Frida's more recognizable visual traits that will become iconic were the traditional dresses she wore. They're called, and there's no way I'm going to get this right, I think it's Wipil, which is a Nahuatl word. They're traditional pre-Columbian dress tunic things that are usually a layer of skirt, blouse, and then sort of a white lace layer that comes out of the bottom. I don't know. I usually wear jeans and a t-shirt. This is out of my wheelhouse. If you Google it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. H-U-I-P-I-L. They go way back, and there are regional varieties within Mexico, and they are worn throughout Mesoamerica all the way down to the Mayans in Guatemala, and were often ornately decorated and can be a way to show off your embroidery, cloth dyeing, and homemaking skills. Weepils were still worn, don't get me wrong. They were just more of a country or rustic outfit now, or for large festivals when people dressed up in traditional costumes. I don't want to say it was the old lady villager outfit, but it kind of was. This is not at all the fashion of her generation in Mexico City, not in Frida's social circle. 
She came from a pretty bougie background considering, with the Cachuchas, Tina Modotti, and the wealthier people in Mexico City wearing European, American, other global fashion trends. She was rocking men's suits and leather jackets. This background caused her some shame in the midst of a shift in cultural priorities. Both her and Diego will continue to play down the German father preparatory stuff. The Weepiels, at first, were maybe a way to deflect that issue and play up the image of a beautiful Amerindian-descended peasant in the big city. Early on, there was some messaging involved, and it was something that Diego actively encouraged, until it became something that Frida loved and embraced and became part of her own image. And it's a good distraction. She had different hairstyles, and I totally forgot to mention the hairstyle thing. In any self-portrait, always look at Frida's hair, how it's styled, what kind of braids are in it, the length, if it's slicked back or down across her shoulders. There's going to be a few paintings where we'll have no choice but to talk about her hair. It's impossible not to. In one of them, she has an Angela Davis-style afro. For the other paintings where I forget or can't recognize an emotional inference or cultural message in a hairstyle, it's probably there anyway. As Frida's Mexican aesthetic evolved in Cuernavaca, away from most of her family and friends, she begins to paint again. She painted her third self-portrait as she was dealing with Diego, Ione Robinson, her abortion, and trying to accept her fertility issues. And all of that is being expressed on canvas. Here we see the beginnings of Frida's ability and willingness to expose herself and bear to the world a wider spectrum of emotions than the, the calm and collected or quiet sexuality we saw before, a willingness to expose her pain. In her last painting, she was confidently facing the viewer with an intense gaze. It's a, a whimsical theme with the clock and the airplane in the background. She called that portrait Time Flies. Here, that intensity and confidence is muted. It's everything. It's the corners of her mouth that are almost turning down, her eyes, the tilt of her head, not looking straight at the viewer, these small millimeter differences that completely change the tone and impact of the painting. She's not happy in this painting, and she's not happy in life. Diego finishing his murals can't come quickly enough. As expected, the communists in Mexico were all up in arms because Diego was commissioned by Dwight from New Jersey and the conservative backlash against communist-themed murals was as strong as ever, though it's looking like the gamble worked as planned. America was ready for the Mexican muralists. Orozco had recently gone to the U.S. and Siqueiros will head there soon as well. After the stock market crashed in October 1929, the Great Depression caused a jump in unemployment to 10% and was rising at a crazy rate and will peak at over 20%. And even those that had jobs weren't getting paid much and could barely afford to live. Most of America was broke as hell. We covered some of this in Pollock. Entire cities and towns were decimated. There was large-scale population displacement as people desperately searched for jobs, bread lines, soup kitchens, widespread poverty, and everyone smelled all ripe and gamey. The Depression also brought on simmering and sometimes outright violent resentment between the workers and laborers who felt taken advantage of and the rich capitalists who were making money off the Depression. This was a time period that also saw a significant rise in the rate of millionaires. A similar socio-political dynamic will apply to how and why murals were commissioned in the states as those in government buildings in Mexico. 
It's the trade-off issue all over again. American families and wealthy conglomerates will hire Mexican muralists to seem open-minded and appreciative of their workers. The risk is that the painter will promote the rights of those workers and ideally inspire them to action. Same thing we saw with the Mexican government. It's a risk for a perceived benefit. In America, though, there's the added bonus for commissioning someone like Diego. It's a rich white people adventure. They get to tell stories about the time they hung out with the world-renowned artist and his charming and beautiful young wife from a small village, wearing pre-Columbian fashion, two interesting communists from Mexico with big personalities. After a lengthy visa workaround process to deal with the communism stuff, the State Department wasn't too happy. In November 1930, Frida and Diego left Mexico and headed to America, or as Frida called it, Gringolandia. We're in the money, we're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. They traveled to San Francisco so Diego could fulfill his commissions at the California School of Fine Arts and the San Francisco Exchange Luncheon Club. Their lifestyle was exactly the same as it was in Cuernavaca. You're going to start to notice some patterns here. Except at night, they're having high society dinners with American intellectuals, architects and artists. They went to a Cal Stanford football game, which Stanford won 41 to nothing. And for months, they're immersed in the glamour of San Francisco's elite which Diego loved. He was having a blast being wined and dined and treated like a god with a full staff of assistants to help him out. The tone and political tenor of these commissions would be the same, only now they involved American history instead of Mexican, specifically Californian history. For one of his models, Diego thought that Helen Wills, a beautiful tennis champion, would be the perfect representation of California. She lived in the area and met Diego and Frida at his studio. Once he saw Helen, nobody else would do. His mind was made up. Diego and Helen spent an Ione Robinson amount of time together, and they would disappear for days on end in order to, according to Diego, make sure he was capturing her image perfectly. The rumors that followed were difficult for Frida to ignore. When the mural was completed, there were two depictions of Helen Wills. In one, she was clothed. In another, she was completely nude. As Diego was being himself and having a blast in America, Frida was having slightly less fun. I think some of it was culture shock more than anything. And don't get me wrong, she loved the city of San Francisco itself. The ocean, the view, the diverse population. It was the wealthy gringos of Gringolandia that were the turnoff. She thought San Francisco's elite were insincere, not particularly intelligent, and she was bothered by the income and lifestyle disparities that she saw in a capitalist country. Frida, quote, I don't particularly like the gringo people. They are boring, and they all have faces like unbaked rolls, especially the old women, unquote. In her spare time, she wandered the streets of San Francisco, visiting the markets and museums, meeting people, and practicing her English. Walking itself was becoming more difficult because her right foot, the, the multiple surgeries hadn't fixed the problems, and her foot had started to like turn out into the right for some reason. It was stretching out the tendons and the ligaments, and she felt the pain mostly in her toe. I think it was her big toe. She fought through the pain and would try as often as possible to get to Chinatown, her favorite part of the city. She loved the people who frequented Chinatown, the beauty and complexity of the silks that she would use for dresses, and loved, loved Chinese babies. From a letter to her friend Isabella Campos, quote, 
Never in my life have I seen such beautiful children as the Chinese ones. Yes, they are really extraordinary. I would love to steal one so that you could see for yourself. Unquote. Frida writes a lot of letters back home. Not all of them are about how adorable Chinese babies are. Letters were the email and text messages of the time. They were at the center of commercial and personal communication, government functions, and international diplomacy. People used to write so many letters. Not a huge problem during the Jackson Pollock series from a narrative perspective and trying to keep track of where everybody is because he wasn't super interested in using his words. Here it's different. Frida is a prolific writer, and letters become a way for her to stay connected to Matilda, the family, and what's going on with everyone back home. Matilda and Frida's relationship is changing now that they're both adults. They are becoming much closer, and they're better understanding one another, and that evolving mother-daughter dynamic is difficult to track due to so much of it happening through the mail. In between episodes, I'm going to start posting on the show Instagram a combination of diary entries, which are a little more visual, you'll see what I mean, and excerpts from letters she wrote to Matilda. It'll be another source of information for things that don't make it into an episode, and there was a lot going on back in Kyoakon after Frida left that she needed to be updated on. Christina and her husband, who recently had a daughter named Isolda, are expecting again. And Matilda and Guillermo have gone from their bizarre meet-cute at the La Perla, to raising a family together, to now being the crazy old couple trying to deal with aging together. Guillermo has been and is continuing to lose hearing, and his behavior is starting to become a little more erratic, and money became such a problem that Frida and Diego paid off their mortgage and said they could live in the house for the rest of their lives. By now, the house was painted that iconic blue color, and a rotating group of family members will live there over the years. For example, Christina comes back to live in the house with her parents in 1930 when her husband abandoned her right after she gave birth to their son, Antonio. There's still a lot of family happening to this family. From a letter to Matilda on the 21st of November, 1930. Quote, Dearly precious mama, it was so nice to get your little letter as well as Papa's message. In Kitty's letter, I learned that her daughter is doing better. I had such terrible anxiety because of that. Christy also tells me that you are doing well and my father is still getting upset. Now that I am not close to him, I miss even his tantrums and everything. One doesn't know what one has until it's lost. Diego is doing well, his eyes are doing better, and tell Kitty that he thanked her for the letter very much. Write to me whenever you can, because the day I get one of your letters is worth more than a party every day. Have a million kisses from your daughter, Frida, who adores you more each day and who doesn't forget you, not even for a little moment, unquote. While in San Francisco, Frida meets somebody else that she'll correspond with for the rest of her life, Dr. Leo Alesser, a renowned surgeon, humanitarian, professor at Stanford Medical School, and someone whose entire life confirms that I'm not as good of a person as I'd like to think I am. This guy was kind, thoughtful, intelligent. He even traveled to China to write a childbirth manual to help rural Chinese women deliver more safely. Frida must have loved that. More beautiful Chinese babies. And after he retired, practiced community medicine in an underserved village in the middle of nowhere, Mexico, for the next 24 years until he died at 95. Everybody loved Dr. Lesser. After they met through some acquaintance, he examined Frida in San Francisco in an attempt to figure out a solution to this new foot situation and to give her a general health assessment. 
He said Frida had especially bad scoliosis, a curvature of the spine which was never diagnosed, was missing a vertebra in her spine, and had a congenital spinal defect called spina bifida. And I had to look that one up. Uh, spina bifida occurs during fetal development, and the lower part of the spine doesn't close properly, and the spinal cord pokes out from in between the vertebrae. So she had that, all in addition to getting hit by a train. Between Dr. Alesser's honesty regarding the state of her health, his kind bedside manner, and extensive medical knowledge, Frida will only trust his medical opinion moving forward. If if she waits for his response before making a decision, which we will get to. Of course, they formed a very close friendship as well. It was during this time in Northern California that Frida really consistently painted again, not just a little bit here and there to produce one painting. And there are two specific paintings from this period that I want to talk about. First is the portrait of Mrs. Jean White, which was finished in January 1931. This portrait is what happens when a painter has absolutely zero rapport with her model. It's a bland portrait. Jean doesn't look too happy, and it's not the most flattering portrayal. Almost like Frida doesn't like Jean too much. But don't take my word for it, though. Take Frida's. Quote, Jean has nothing in her head but idiocies. And not only that... In addition, she does it with a pretentiousness that leaves one cold. Unquote. That's pretty savage. And looking at the portrait, knowing how innately talented Frida is at portraying emotions on canvas, it's even more savage. But when I look at the portrait of Jean White, and keep in mind, I'm even less qualified to be an art critic, I see not Matilda. Old gringo women... For example, Jean may irritate Frida, but I think there's a likelihood that part of her feeling is owed to the fact that these old white women aren't Matilda. She's spending a lot of time away from home in the land of unbaked rolls, and there might be some homesickness coming through here. It's either that or rich old white women sucked in the 1930s, perhaps a combination of both. But the rarity of Frida painting the portrait of somebody she doesn't care for or admire and how that person is portrayed and why will be an interesting comparison moving forward. The other portrait from this time that I wanted to talk about is of a guy named Luther Burbank, who was a famous agricultural scientist and botanist. Burbank's career was crazy. He really loved plants. And, the, well, I should back up for a second. I like plants. It bums me out when my plants are sad. I like how alive they make the inside of my apartment look. I have an indoor tree. Plants are great. Luther Burbank loved plants, to a degree that might be concerning. Burbank loved everything about plants, especially their genitalia, and he dedicated his life to making them have interspecies plant sex, creating several hundred varieties of different kinds of flora, including a bunch of different kinds of fruit. Even when the rest of the scientific community was worried about ethical or practical boundaries, his theory was, quote, try everything, and there's no reason to go through examples of his new plant species, which means I'm definitely going to. Burbank invented 50 varieties of lilies, a number of which derive from the leopard lily, the flower that caused him to move to California, which is bizarre. Ten varieties of berries, the freestone peach, 113 varieties of plums and prunes, and he invented the russet Burbank potato that was resistant to the phytophthora in phytophthora? There's a P and an H and a T and an H all next to each other in the middle of that word. The phytophthora infestans, which is the water mold that caused the Irish potato famine. 
These new Burbank russet potatoes were then sent to Ireland to help them recover from the devastation of the potato famine, and the Irish were super grateful and effusive in their praise of Burbank. Just ask this Irish guy. Possibly a night, there'd be a full moon there, about a night, and it should be bright out, and could anyone go up in the mountains about a night, sure? Well, there was 45 sheep missing, like, and the lambs and everything, the sheep, just count, just count out the nice bit of money, like. Thanks, Irish guy. Burbank saved a lot of lives with his agricultural achievements, mostly his potatoes. Sorry, I've had that word with that accent in my head for weeks while putting this episode together. Ah, potatoes! But if you're familiar with this show, you know that there's no way I'd be sidetracked with this guy if there wasn't other stuff we needed to talk about. Not only was he some sort of pimp for plants, Luther Burbank was also an ardent supporter of eugenics, the selective breeding of human beings to maximize traits deemed to be superior. This is the, the Nazi master race stuff. Not explicitly, eugenic supporters would never say that outright, but their theories tend to follow racial lines and are accompanied by a belief in things like segregationist marriage laws. Old Luther? He just loved to breed living things. It was his passion, overriding all other principles. I'm sure he was a weird little kid. And as a unanimously elected member of the American Breeders Association, that's a real thing, he just didn't realize that human beings were qualitatively different than fruit and vegetables. He died in 1927 and was a California legend when Frida painted this. She loved the story when she heard it. The science, the plants, creating new living beings. It was the sort of magical story that kept her going during the downtimes. Not the eugenics part. I doubt she knew that side. In the Luther Burbank portrait, we're seeing the magic Frida felt in the story. It's the first time she adopts surrealism in her work. That's why this painting is so important in Frida's artistic development. The surrealist movement in Europe is in full swing right now, and they're seeing the emergence of careers like Salvador Dali, René Magritte, and there's surrealist writers and filmmakers, even surrealist music, and the movement has been influencing a significant portion of North American creative types. Frida's use of surrealism is very much in line with her and what's going on right now. It involves nature, living and dying things, reproduction and the creation of life, and this will be an ongoing theme, her use of nature as a metaphor for life and death. When Burbank died, he was buried under a giant cedar tree, represented here by a decomposing body that's connected to the trunk of the Burbank tree, nurturing the tree itself. It's another example of duality, the, the two Burbanks in the circle of life, surrounded by varieties of plants as a nod to his accomplishments. It's not a complicated metaphor, but the image is visually striking. In June 1931, they left California and went back to Mexico City briefly, and temporarily stayed in the Blue House. With money from wealthy American patrons who privately commissioned him, Diego was building them two new homes, a his and a hers, connected by a bridge. A house like this would give them each separate space to work and would also serve as neutral corners during their epic maritable blow-ups. This house design is a good idea. Frida was happy to be back near her family and friends in what she called this country of enchiladas and fried beans. Diego was cranky to be back in Mexico and missed the flattery and excitement of being a celebrity in America. He wanted to go back, and he's about to get his chance. Francis Flynn Payne, the art advisor for the Rockefeller family, traveled down to Mexico to ask Diego if he would put on a solo exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. 
The museum was new, and it was struggling, and it needed to make a splash. Having him would be edgy, and it would rile people up. Politicians, business leaders, workers, it's exactly what he wanted. He really couldn't say no to this. It was only the second soul exhibition at the museum. Henri Matisse was the first, and the New York aristocrats were rolling out the red carpet. So they repacked their bags, got on a passenger ship, and headed back to Gringolandia, to one of the more exciting places in the world at the time, the Big Apple. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where Harlem putting on the river? When they reached New York, the museum president was waiting for them to arrive on the docks. And after they unpacked their bags at the Hotel Barbizon Plaza on 6th and Central Park South, the routine of Diego working all day and crazy parties at night started right back up. Frida disliked wealthy New Yorkers even more than those from San Francisco. And she sure didn't like Frances Payne, the woman who came down to Mexico with the MoMA offer. I couldn't find out exactly what happened. There was some sort of altercation, and her and Payne hated each other, and neither of them hit it well. Soon after they settled in, an over-the-top, ostentatious banquet was held by one of Diego's wealthy patrons. It was a grand society event. One of the dinner guests was named Lucienne Bloch, the daughter of a famous Swiss composer, Ernest Bloch. Lucienne was young, around Frida's age when they met, and was a talented sculptor, photographer, painter, and she was that kind of effortless pretty that sneaks up on you because she's not really trying to be. She had high cheekbones, loved to laugh, and hair that was in that difficult-to-classify color between dark blonde and light brown. Can anyone feel Frida's blood boiling right now? Lucienne's hairstyle, it wasn't quite a bob, which was out of fashion by the 30s. It was longer, and she needed to curl it up at the ends. Her hair was in transition out of a bob, and it still looked good. You know, the exact type of person Frida didn't want to see sit right next to Diego during the banquet dinner. You know what's happening with Diego underneath that table. The whole party can hear it over dinner conversation and music. During dinner, Lucienne and Diego were talking and laughing. The monster came out and he told a bunch of stories and Frida was furious and naturally assumed Lucienne was flirting with him. She was definitely not flirting with Diego. She wanted a job as his assistant and she wasn't gonna sleep with him to get it. This isn't some doe-eyed tourist. Lucienne explained what happened next. Quote, I saw this Frida Rivera with her one eyebrow that crossed her forehead and her beautiful jewelry just giving me these dirty looks. After dinner, Frida came over to me and she looked at me with a really sharp look and said, I hate you. This was my first contact with Frida and I loved her for it. Unquote. Once Frida realized that Lucien wasn't trying to sleep with Diego, they were inseparable. They'll spend a lot of time together in New York while he's in the studio, and Lucien will be a friend and will be there for Frida when she needs her most. These moments were all about having fun, though. This is the New York experience Frida was supposed to have, and it's with someone she genuinely likes. Lucienne took Frida all over the city. They went to gallery openings, parties and speakeasies, and had fancy society lunches, during which Frida didn't really eat too much. Frida hated American food. Hated it. It was too bland, and it was too boring. And I'm on her side on this one. She spent her entire life in Mexico, living in a culture that had thousands of years perfecting how to work with spices, incorporating pre-Columbian crops like maize and chiles and cocoa. 
Then you bring in the French, who took food so seriously that they started a war over it. Iberian food and cooking techniques from the Spanish. Mexican people had food like chilaquiles, churros, and mole sauce. The perfection of chocolate and spice that has over 20 ingredients and you have to simmer for hours. They have chili rellenos and churros. Frida gets dropped into 1930s America, a great time and place to be alive exclusively if you were a rich white guy in fedoras, and she encounters food like this. From the 1932 Macy's Cookbook and Kitchen Guide for the Busy Woman by Mabel Clare, this was a real thing and legit cookbook found, conveniently enough, on the Henry Ford Museum website. There's even an original copy of the recipe book. What a resource this website turned out to be. Anti-Semitism and sexism conveniently located in one spot. So let's get those aprons on, ladies. Okay, let's take a look here. Oh, what's this? It's a chicken salad recipe that calls for French dressing, olives, capers, pineapple, and mayonnaise for those meals when you really want to throw up in your mouth. We have graham bread, today known as the graham cracker, a recipe invented by Sylvester Graham who wanted to create food so boringly flavorless that it prevented you from masturbating, something he called self-abuse. And finally, we have here a recipe for stuffed red peppers, ordinarily a tasty dish. Only these contain cream, vinegar, cloves, sugar, cabbage, and lemon juice. That is objectively disgusting. And when you're born and raised in the land of enchiladas and fried beans, apple cream and vinegar cloves stuffed red peppers sounds like the thing you give kids after they drink chemicals from underneath the sink. The only food that Frida was even remotely interested in eating in Gringolandia were malted milk balls, applesauce, cheese, and comical amounts of candy. Candy was her favorite. She was super into candy. There's this one anecdote where she's sitting down with members of the press who were excited to be interviewing the wife of Diego Rivera. It was a human interest piece, and maybe they can get some good quotes or stories. The journalists sit down with her, and they've got their fedora hats and suits, and they're full of a delicious lunch of chicken salad sandwiches and graham bread so they don't self-abuse. And they had their little notepads out, and they're like, gee golly, let's see what this communist Mexican woman has to say. She sits there for a beat as the reporters are waiting, licking the tip of their pencil, and while staring at them and not saying a word, she slowly lifts up a candy cane that was hitherto unseen and starts to aggressively suck on the candy cane as if she's giving it an A-plus effort blowjob. And as she's enthusiastically getting after that candy cane, just ho, 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 the reporters are looking at her like, what the hell is happening? And they had no idea what to do. Whatever Gringolandia lacked in palatable food, besides candy, New York made up for it with entertainment options. Going to see live theater on Broadway was a blast, but she was overjoyed at going to the cinemas, where they played films with sound, which was mind-blowing. This is 1932. We're only a couple years into the talkies, and not every theater had them. So now that she's got the opportunity, she's not going to let it go to waste, and was obsessed with horror movies like Frankenstein, a relatable premise, and her and Lucienne saw that movie several times. She also really dug comedies like The Three Stooges and couldn't get enough of Groucho Marx, whose sense of humor was aggressive for the time, and right up her alley. But you're the man I've been dreaming of. What do you eat before you go to bed? Yes, I don't think I've ever seen four more beautiful eyes in my life. Well, three anyway. I can dance with you till the cows come home. 
On second thought, I'd rather dance with the cows and you come home. The glitz and the glamour of the city was, at a minimum, a fun distraction and adventure. It's New York. If you can't find something there you like, it's because you don't like interesting things. Diego's not only excited by the city and the attention, he's happy and feeling fulfilled. He's making artistic history. Frida is there. On the surface, she'll go to see Frankenstein in the cinema again, absolutely, or try to freak out more reporters, but she's not fully present. Her heart was back in Mexico with the Cachuchas, Christina, and her parents. From a December 26th, 1931 letter to Matilda, quote, Dear Mama, your letter arrived right at Christmas and I was happy all day to learn that you were doing well. On Christmas Day, Diego worked until 8.30 at night, and I stayed at the hotel because I didn't have anywhere else to go. Christy must have told you already. I fought with the hag, Frances Payne. She sent me a flower pot for Christmas, and she went to see Diego to ask him exclusively about me. But I have not paid any attention to her, and I barely say good morning and goodbye to her. Don't you think that's the best thing to do? Today I got a letter from Papa, as funny as usual, but typically he complained about life. On the 25th at night, we went out with a young gringo who lived in Mexico for three years and who knew Diego. He took us to an Indian restaurant, and Diego consumed food like eight madmen, and he loved Indian food. There were some beautiful Indian women, one who looked like Kitty. She was a little darker, but the same type. Please tell me how you are doing and how is Kitty and everybody. Take good care of yourself, and I hope that we'll soon be together. Kisses for everybody, and for you, all the love from your little Frida. Unquote. When Diego's show opened at MoMA, the first day was a bonanza of press and celebrities in and outside of the art community. Frida didn't say much during the opening, and nobody asked her much for that matter. This was the Diego show, and she was just the wife du jour. She was a wallflower, and most of the press and crowds ignored her. By the time the show closed, it was a critical success and broke the attendance record for any exhibit shown at MoMA. Commercial success was slower, but promising. There was a lot of interest. With the show now over, and results not even Diego could whine about, Frida's getting anxious to head back home. She'd recently received news that nobody wants, news that makes you stop in your tracks and is a reminder that there are things in life more important than adulation and success. Matilda was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. And any time breast cancer touches your life, be it a friend, a loved one, or you yourself, it's scary. And the prognosis in 1932-1933, chemotherapy is only becoming a viable treatment, and it's not available everywhere. Being far from home and her family was much more difficult now, and Frida was hoping this would be the end of their American adventure. But Frida's a passenger in this episode. Her wanting to go home is a consideration, one of many, and not the highest. Another consideration is the greater good, the cause, spreading the rights of workers, no matter how terrified your wife is at the thought of losing her mother. For Diego, New York was only a stepping stone to his goal of spreading communism and empowering the labor class in America. In his mind, New York workers were bankers, advertisers, and journalists. New York didn't represent the evils of capitalism nearly as much as the city of Detroit. 
In the 1930s, Detroit was the center of the automobile industry, and the auto workers represented the hammer and sickle of labor in America. They were responsible for building the cars that were changing the landscape of the country. They had to fight for safer working conditions, were getting shot at while protesting for fair pay, and to not get physically abused by their employers who were chipping away at their pay and benefits, whose blood, sweat, and tears lined the pockets of auto executives like Henry Ford. This was the proletariat that Diego believed could change the world, so long as they were properly inspired by him. It was his help they needed. Coming off the MoMA exhibition and the glowing national press that accompanied it, Diego was commissioned by Edsel Ford, Henry Ford's son, for a fee of $10,000, equivalent to roughly $200,000 today. He was to paint a mural celebrating Detroit's auto industry, specifically the Ford Motor Company, on the interior walls of the Detroit Institute of the Arts. This is everything Diego wanted and everything the Communist Party of Mexico was afraid of. It's a Mexican communist painter selling out and getting a commission to paint for Henry Ford in celebration of his company that fought against workers' rights. The potential benefit to the workers was significant, as was the risk. With stakes like that, Frida would have to wait to see Matilda. They're trying treatments and it's not dire yet. Don't worry, we'll get home soon. With this money, we'll be more able to help your parents. I'm sure there were a number of excuses. By the time they were preparing to leave, her time in New York had changed Frida. The uncertain young bride from a small village had weathered the storm of American wealth and capitalism. San Francisco's top 1% paled in comparison to the power and influence of the New York Rockefellers and the good years, New York's famously brutal press, and everyone loved her, loved her and Diego as a couple. Even before the news about Matilda, Frida was leaving the city with that Big Apple, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere confidence. And add on to that, she's now carrying the worries that her mother is almost certainly dying, and she's not there to help. Mi jefe, who kept us fed and alive. With that in the picture, do you imagine Frida gives a good goddamn about what gringos think about her? With chronic pain and mobility issues ever-present, her foot is a catastrophe of parts and she's dealing with corsets still, her brashness is back, and she'll need that now more than ever to navigate what she's about to be swarmed by. In Detroit, Frida is about to be confronted by the worst kind of gringo, the new money gringo. On April 21st, 1932, at around noon, they arrived in Detroit by train and were greeted by the press, local dignitaries of the art community, and someone from the Mexican consulate. The reception they received in Detroit began similarly to the reception they received in San Francisco and New York. That's how it began. If New York City represented generational wealth, Detroit was its tacky new money counterpart. It's your white trash cousin who won $2 million in the state lotto, and everybody knows it'll be gone in three years, along with his repossessed four-wheelers. The New York rich may be snobby, but they don't have that insecurity of their wealth disappearing. So they were nicer to their colorful and quaint communist visitors from Mexico. They were a more socially sophisticated form of asshole. In contrast, the auto industry in Detroit made its executives filthy rich comparatively recently. Many of the wealthy were so excited to have so much money and wanted to fit in with their peers that they would just assume rich people all needed 15-foot crystal chandeliers in the foyer. Oh, I'm sorry, the foyer. Otherwise, how would people know you have money? Oh, and you have to be a dick to people because you can afford to be. 
Diego not only loved Detroit's ass-kissing, but he was fulfilling his communist dream, exporting the theory and empowering workers in what he considered to be the heart of American industry. He was happy. Frida was less impressed by what she saw as an obvious fakeness and insincerity on the part of Detroit's upper class, the way they treated the city's poor, its downtrodden, and the way they treated Jewish people. Even Henry Ford's anti-Semitism was normalized in a city with hotels that wouldn't accept Jewish guests. As soon as they got to their hotel, the Wardell, they saw a sign that said, quote, the best home address in Detroit, which they later learned meant no Jewish people were allowed. During the banquets and the parties, new money Detroit couldn't hold on to the act of civility, and the high society wives were dismissive of Frida at every turn, the way she dressed, looked at people, and anything she had to say. In response, giving zero shits at this point, Frida turned up the dial of her personality to make sure everybody felt uncomfortable. She would make extremely sarcastic comments about the Catholic Church around the devoutly Catholic and would glowingly talk about communism as often as possible. While she was having tea at Henry Ford's home with his wife Clara and her friends, Frida would say things like, quote, shit on me, and then act like she had no idea what that meant. Frida and Clara Ford did not get along. In the Venn diagram of bitchy rich Americans who were mean to Frida, Clara was right in the middle. One night, Frida and Diego were invited to Henry and Clara Ford's home for an intimate dinner. Frida didn't want to go because Henry was a vocal anti-Semite and Clara was terrible. But this was one of those dinners you couldn't turn down and she understood it was part of the game. The evening was happening. During dinner, in the middle of one of those awkward silences, those moments when nobody has anything to say, when the food becomes a convenient distraction and all you can hear are the sounds of forks against plates, an unfathomably bored and unamused Frida Kahlo looked over at Henry Ford and loudly asked him, quote, Mr. Ford, are you Jewish? I don't believe Henry or Clara took that well, but Diego laughed his ass off as soon as they left the house. As hard as he was working on mural projects before, the Detroit commissions were on a different level. This is what mattered most. This would be his legacy, exporting communism and infiltrating the American automotive industry and proving to the Mexican Communist Party that he was right. The focus and the dedication required to proving this point would come at the expense of the time he'd spend with Frida. And normally she'd be fine with this. It's Diego. He's a creature of habit and is predictable. I'm sure you could all anticipate it by now as well. He'll work insanely long hours all day. At parties at night he'll get drunk, bringing out the monster. He'll sleep around. They'll fight. When the commission is done, they'll go somewhere else. Rinse and repeat. Not this time. About a month after they got to Detroit, Dr. Alesser referred Frida to a Dr. Pratt at the Henry Ford Hospital because her foot was getting worse. It kept twisting out and to the right, and she now had a trophic ulcer, a kind of weeping, pussy, open sore which wasn't healing, and her toe was causing severe pain. She was also two months pregnant. When she found out, her first instinct was... I don't want to go through with the risk of a pregnancy. It's too dangerous, and Diego wasn't interested in having another child. He was 46 years old, already had a few families where he's an absentee father. That history can't be ignored, and this would be a distraction from the most important thing he could do for the people and for the cause. Frida said a child would come fourth on a list of priorities for Diego, and it wasn't the right time. 
Dr. Pratt was understanding, and to help terminate the pregnancy, he prescribed a dose of quinine and a concentrated dose of castor oil. Ingesting a large amount of castor oil can cause issues with a pregnancy, and it can induce a miscarriage. Sometimes, it's not an effective technique and there can be acute and dangerous side effects. Feeling like she had no option, Frida drank the castor oil but only had light hemorrhaging over the next few days. A week later, Dr. Pratt confirmed she was still pregnant and said that instead of continuing to try to abort, it was healthier to follow through with the pregnancy and have a cesarean. He said she should go back, think about it, and talk it over with Diego. The hospital had a great surgical staff, and if she stayed in Detroit, she could safely have a baby. There's hope now. After believing her body would never allow her to have a child, there's now hope. Frida wrote a letter to Dr. Alesser asking if this was a possibility. Could she truly have a baby with a cesarean? Considering the issues with her pelvis and spine, she needs to know if this is real. Before Alesser could write back, Frida had made up her mind. She was risking her life. She was having this baby. He may have been the only doctor whose opinion Frida trusted, but her decision to risk a pregnancy was something I don't think any doctor's opinion could sway. Lucienne traveled to Detroit to keep her company and distract her from the intense discomfort. Some of the issues caused by the changes a woman's body normally goes through during pregnancy, they were made worse because of her condition. Through the spring, Frida couldn't get around as well, so they spent less time out and about than normal. Instead, her and Lucienne prepared for the baby and spent time painting and sketching in the living room. As spring turned to summer, in July of 1932, Frida was now five months pregnant, and it had been a while since she felt any discomfort. Some of the complications were going away. This is starting to feel real. Frida's going to be a mom. She wants a boy. I'm sure she'd be thrilled with a daughter, but she would tell people that she was hoping for a chubby little Dieguito who cried a lot. She began to feel a maternal pull and a need to give herself over to her child. She was fascinated by the biology of those feelings, the biology of motherhood, the idea that you would sacrifice your own innate self-interest, your survival instincts, to make sure your child would be okay. On the night of Sunday, July 3rd, 1932, Frida started to lose color in her face and someone saw that she was spotting blood. After everyone went to bed, Lucienne said that during the night she could hear cries of pain, assuming somebody would say something if there was a problem. And at five o'clock in the morning, Diego burst into Lucienne's room panicking, yelling for a doctor. And when the ambulance finally arrived at 6 a.m. to rush them to Henry Ford Hospital, her bed was full of clotted blood. Lucienne said at that moment Frida looked so tiny, like she was 12 years old and her hair was wet with tears. After the doctors examined her, they told her that she had lost the baby, and Frida was beyond heartbroken. It's the news she wanted to hear least, and I think deep down, she knew was coming, and she didn't want it to be real. For the last two weeks, she was bleeding every day, and the blood was different. It was off. She called it sanguasa, corrupt blood, and she didn't want to tell anybody. For the next 13 days, Frida had to stay in the hospital so her body could naturally expel her miscarriage, which is a process called expectant management. In modern times, there's medicine to help this happen, and there are surgical procedures if the pregnancy is this far along, but surgery wasn't an option then. 
For those 13 days, Lucienne and Diego kept Frida company in the hospital as she cried over and over again at the thought of never having children. And she kept asking herself what was wrong with her, that she would cause the baby to, as she put it, disintegrate inside of her. She's blaming herself for losing the baby. It's her body that failed again. It's her body that did this. Frida said she spent those two weeks in a profound depression, having to cope with her body routinely expelling pieces of the decomposing child she lost. Quote, I wish I were dead. I don't know why I have to keep on living like this. As she's trying to process and understand what happened, she's mostly worried about Diego, who was beside himself, partly because he was helpless. Frida was almost a maternal figure to him now, as much as she was a wife, and will always be that from now on. He depended on her to remember to eat, take care of himself, not make stumpy horse legs, everything. Everyone was worrying about everyone. There's lots of sadness and anxiety in the hospital room. It was tense. Lucien knew that Frida needed to laugh, to have some sort of emotional break, a reminder that she would get past this, that she would be okay. Making someone laugh right now is a tough assignment. This is one of the most awful, intimately awful things I could imagine someone going through. But that's what good friends do. They know how to lift you up. And Lucien knew exactly what would do this for Frida. She went out and had a beautifully written, compassionate telegram produced that offered condolences for Frida's loss and had the telegram signed, Mrs. Henry Ford, Frida's anti-Semitic old white lady nemesis. When Frida read the telegram and got to the signature line and realized what Lucienne did, she laughed so hard that she pushed out what was left of the decomposing fetus onto the hospital bed. I honestly don't even have the words to wonder or guess what the emotions are that someone goes through in that moment. How do you even deal with that? And to have it come off of hysterical laughter on the spectrum of possible human experiences, I have to imagine that's one of the more traumatic and painful, and then the guilt over feeling a sense of relief that at least that stage of the nightmare is over. Frida was ready for it, though to the extent that she could be, and she'd already prepared for what she would do next. The day after she got to the hospital, she demanded medical books in order to study what a male fetus looks like at that stage of development. With that knowledge, when the time came, she would be able to accurately paint the baby she lost. The doctors weren't convinced this was a good idea and refused to give her the books, and Frida was extremely pissed off. Diego told the doctors, quote, you are not dealing with an average person. Frida will do something with it. She will do an artwork. And knowing her mind was made up, Diego went out himself and bought a medical book. On July 17th, Frida was healthy enough to leave the hospital. And as Diego got back to work, so did Frida. That July, 1932, on the heels of one of the worst moments of her life, she painted Henry Ford Hospital, a painting that had no precedent. The composition is a version of a retablo, a type of Catholic devotional painting common in Mexico. Retablos were colonial-era paintings, and they were usually small, and many times related to traumatic events, with an afflicted person lying in a bed, with Jesus, Mary, maybe some angels, floating above, protecting the patient. Frida's interpretation of a retablo tossed aside centuries of how artists portrayed both pregnancy and women in general. 
Historically, the nude female form, painted predominantly by men, reflected desirability. The nudes of the Renaissance, with more mathematical proportions, Peter Paul Rubens digging the thickness. Societal preferences may change, but nudity was predominantly a celebration of the quote-unquote ideal woman. A similar mentality was used when depicting a pregnant woman, something that wasn't portrayed often in Western art until Titian's Diana and Callisto and the Virgin Mary paintings of the Renaissance, the Madonna del Parto image. Those depictions communicate a calm serenity, as if pregnancy was nothing but glorious and easy, as if your body isn't flooded with hormones with names I can't pronounce, nobody gets hemorrhoids or swollen feet, it's another expression of the ideal state of a woman. Henry Ford Hospital is a self-portrait of a nude woman, painted by a woman, pregnant in a hospital bed, crying in the middle of a miscarriage. Visually, it is realistic, it's bloody and melancholic, and there were no Virgin Marys or angels protecting Frida or her unborn child. The viewer is forced to accept the realities of her pregnancy and loss and the most unfortunate thing that can happen. Continuing her exploration and use of surrealism, her body is connected by blood vessels to floating images, representations of what she went through and her thoughts and feelings during those 13 days of hell. There's her hips, an orchid Diego brought to the hospital, and a snail is a metaphor for how slow the expectant management process was, and the developing baby she lost. She painted a miscarried fetus, her miscarried fetus. Titian would have passed out if he saw this. There are differing theories about what the iron vice represents. It could be the pain she went through, the mechanical process of everything. The theories vary quite a bit, and Frida was inconsistent in her explanations. And then far off in the distance is the skyline of Detroit, representing Diego's emotional distance from her during the experience, how alone she felt and disconnected from him. He was in shambles the entire time and wasn't the most reliable support system. Henry Ford Hospital is the first of Frida's great masterpieces. Its emotional scope and depth, combined with the vulnerability and willingness to share all of her pain, when you pair that with the primitive techniques of an untrained artist, the innate honesty of the painting makes it feel even more powerful. This, and future paintings like it, will be a coping mechanism, a way to process the pain in order to get back to a life of normalcy, to keep living her life. Normalcy now is getting back to being a wife. The routine of bringing Diego his lunch, talking with Lucienne and the other assistants, and watching him paint, occasionally giving suggestions. She spent much of her free time with Lucienne, reading, teaching her Spanish, and Frida did continue to paint, only with a lot of distractions. Concentrating was difficult and she was easily pulled away from her work. Exchanging letters with her family back in Coyoacan was another distraction, one that helped her stay connected to what was going on, and she'd include extra money when they had it. Finances were always a problem back home, and now her parents' age and health were becoming a greater concern, which caused more financial issues. Matilda's breast cancer was getting worse. Uh, the treatments weren't as effective as the doctors were hoping, and she's also having issues with gallstones that will require surgery soon. Guillermo's, he's not dealing with the news very well, and he's also getting more seizures, and he was nearly completely deaf. That August, they had a phone installed in the Blue House. It's their first telephone. The first call they made was, of course, to Frida. It wouldn't have been to anybody else. Matilda and Frida were able to speak to each other, but when Guillermo got on the phone, his hearing was so far gone that he couldn't hear the sound of Frida's voice, and he started to cry. 
On August 15, 1932, Matilda wrote Frida a letter. Quote, My charming girl, I will never be able to explain to you the deep feelings I got when I heard your voice, so clearly and so well that it seemed you were next to me. I thanked God and the man who discovered the power to speak at such a long distance. Whatever I say would not be enough to express the feeling I had for the first time in my life. Your mother who adores you, Matilda. The disciplinarian parent is always the one you fight with when you're young and rebellious, and then you get older and marry someone like Diego, who's a different kind of a pain in the ass than Guillermo was to Matilda, yet a pain in the ass nonetheless. And then as an adult, you start to appreciate what they went through, what it's like to be in a relationship, or live in a world where if you divorce your husband, what's next? What are your options? Women in Mexico couldn't even vote yet. Frida's nickname for Matilda when she was growing up may have been Mi Jefe, my boss, but those feelings and that dynamic have softened drastically. You get the sense that Frida realizes the entire house would have been mayhem if it weren't for Matilda. She's having that moment when you start to see your parents as peers as much as they are your parents. They're human like you, and they're flawed, and they make stupid mistakes. And if you're lucky enough to be able to experience it, having those realizations and being able to hang out with your parents as a fellow adult is pretty cool. It's one of those fun parts of life. But like anything else, there's not a guarantee that you'll have time to enjoy it. On September 3rd, Frida received a telegram from one of her sisters. Matilda's breast cancer had advanced, and her health had quickly taken a turn. The tone of the telegram was clear. Frida needed to come home. This was close to the end, and she needed to say goodbye. The only option to get back at the moment was a series of train and bus rides that would take several days, and Diego had deadlines, so Lucienne volunteered to go instead. During the trip through Indianapolis, St. Louis, Laredo, Frida was hemorrhaging blood again, was barely strong enough to walk, and with the telephone lines to Mexico out due to a flood, there was no news on Matilda's health, so Frida was getting frantic and scared. When Frida and Lucienne arrived at the train station in Mexico City on September 8th, they were met by the sisters, cousins, uncles, everybody was crying, the scene was so emotional and chaotic that nobody took their luggage off the train. The next day, they went to see Matilda, who was now in critical condition. Uh, Guillermo was very upset and agitated, and he didn't seem to fully understand what was happening. He's showing symptoms of some form of dementia. He's having issues understanding and having episodes where he gets agitated and angry and he can't remember things. Matilda was in a lot of pain. A recent surgery on September 13th was tough on her body, and she wasn't recovering well. And on September 15th, Matilda Calderon died. From Lucienne Block's diary, quote, Frida sobbed and sobbed. It was terribly sad for her. They didn't tell their father until the next morning. He was almost crazy about it sometimes and would lose his memory and ask why his wife wasn't there. Unquote. For the next five weeks, Frida stayed in Mexico and did her best to pick up the pieces and move forward. She would survive this too. She spent time with her sisters and nieces and nephews and took Guillermo for walks in the park, the same park where he taught her how to row boats, and she checked up on the construction of her and Diego's bridge-connected houses. For the rest of the trip, her and Lucienne stayed with Matilda Jr. in the Doctores district, in her house that had an arguably gaudy European-style decor, which they both thought was extremely tacky. Matilda Jr.'s home had aggressively flowery wallpaper, 
fake Louis XVI rugs, gigantic overstuffed furniture in shiny fabric, and a large porcelain ashtray shaped like a seashell decorated in gold, nude women, and violets. About the ashtray, Frida said, quote, It's so horrible that it's beautiful. When it was time to head back, they were given an emotional send-off at the train station from the sisters, Guillermo, and Lupe Marin. They arrived in Detroit on October 21st, and Diego was there waiting, and he was an epic shitshow disaster. They'd been writing each other letters during the trip, but he failed to mention that her fears that he couldn't handle life without her were well-founded. He'd lost so much weight from forgetting to eat and working himself half to death that he had to wear some guy named Clifford suit, and he was still swimming in it. He lost over a hundred pounds and looked way older and all ashen and saggy. He is ramshackle. Diego, quote, Frida returned to Detroit. She had been watching her mother die and was spent with grief. Added to this, she was horrified by my appearance. At first, she could not recognize me. In her absence, I lost a great deal of weight. The moment I saw her, I called out, It's me! Finally acknowledging my identity, she embraced me and began to cry. Unquote. At a time when he should have been arguably more attentive as a husband, think of what's happened lately. Diego pulled away even more, nearly immediately. Things were stressful at the hotel for the rest of their stay in Detroit. Diego was steadily more irritable as his deadline approached, and in addition to finishing these murals, they were to immediately leave Detroit when it was done so he could paint a mural at Rockefeller Center in New York. Things were off. Frida would repeatedly claim to Lucien that he was acting different, and when she confronted him about her needs or concerns, he would complain and say things like, You don't love me! It wasn't like he didn't have the spare time. He spent a number of hours working as a resource for Detroit's Mexican community. He helped a lot of Mexican citizens get trains back home that they couldn't afford after being trapped in the States during the Great Depression. That's noble, sure, but you've got a wife. He just couldn't handle what was going on at home. What I think might be happening here is Diego has always been catered to and coddled his entire life, from early on when he was an art prodigy to an up-and-coming artist in Paris. Think of the damage he did in Paris. Imagine the number of unclaimed children he left behind. There was no paperwork back then. Then there was the first wife, whose name I forgot, Lupe, and now Frida. He's never had to emotionally compromise on anything. He's been brilliant and just coming everywhere, and nobody said a thing. And he blinks and turns around, and all of a sudden he's in his mid to late 40s. He's dumpy with health problems, and he has this gorgeous, smart, and talented woman who loves him and charms everyone she meets in Gringolandia. She's given candy cane blowjobs to the press, and she brings him snacks with supportive notes telling him how awesome he is. I think he was scared to lose all of that. I mean, he obviously can't feed himself, and not knowing how to deal with those emotions, he's lashing out at Frida as a punishment. Kind of like, how dare you make me feel like that? Don't abandon me again. This unspoken about resentment or misplaced hurt, it's gonna boil over soon. But for now, it's this weird marital stalemate, and the more Diego ignores all of the issues and Frida herself, the more she has time to paint. What comes out of this second phase of her Detroit trip is one of the most extraordinary and shocking paintings of all time. The painting is called My Birth, and it's another version of a retablo, and it is a view right down Broadway of a woman in the middle of giving birth. And this is where things get a little complicated. 
With the baby's eyebrows in the name of the painting, it's clear the baby is a representation of Frida, the implication being the woman giving birth is Matilda, her recent death being acknowledged by the sheet covering the woman's face. On the other hand, if you take one look at that baby's neck and the way the head is placed, it is definitely not alive. She depicted the baby as a stillborn, and later in her journal said of this painting, it was also of her giving birth to herself. The death of the mother from that vantage point is more of a metaphorical, emotional death at the loss of a child, and acknowledging what Frida went through. It's a powerful message of maternity and womanhood, birth and death, and a tribute to Matilda. There's also a clear historical and cultural reference to how the mother and child are portrayed. The mother and child are similar to the common depictions of Tlatzodiotl, who we talked about in the first episode, the goddess associated with birth, fertility, and who took on the sins of men. Those are the carvings that look like the, the woman in distress with the crowning baby head coming out. My Birth is a painting not just of Matilda or Frida or her lost child, it's an acknowledgement of the shared experiences of millions of women in Mexico, going back to her pre-Columbian ancestry, a message that they're all in this together and they all share the same joys and pain. Frida is developing her own contribution to the Mexicanidad movement in a way that is uniquely female and brutal in its honesty. After Diego finished his work in Detroit and they were ready to travel to New York so he could get working on those commissions, both Frida and Diego were starting to act like themselves again, at least outwardly. Frida's biting sense of humor and outgoing personality were back in full force, and Diego was bolstered by auto workers in Detroit protecting his murals from conservative backlash in attempts at defacing his work. He is thrilled with himself, inspiring the laborers of capitalist America, the revolution was beginning in an industrialized nation, and he was the catalyst. In his own mind, that was happening. As he gets working on the mural on the wall of the RCA building in Rockefeller Center, he was ready to cash in the political capital he thought he had to take on Wall Street and capitalist bankers. With Frida supporting him, he gets to work painting a brilliant mural. On one side is an indictment of Wall Street and capitalism, and the other side is a celebration of a Marxist paradise with laborers, teachers, soldiers, and mothers with children, all under the watchful eye of a strong labor leader. By April 1933, people realized this labor leader wasn't an ordinary dude. It was clearly a portrait of Vladimir Lenin in Rockefeller Center, and people lost their minds. A young Nelson Rockefeller, grandson of John D. Rockefeller, who founded Standard Oil, he was an executive vice president of Rockefeller Center and the one who commissioned Diego. He wrote Diego a letter and said the Lenin portrait was unacceptable and he needed to turn the labor leader into someone else. Someone, I don't know, obviously less inflammatory. Diego said that would defeat the point and instead offered to also include Abraham Lincoln. I guess the theory is I'll include one of your guys too, it'll be cool? I don't know. Nelson thought the idea was stupid, fired Diego, and 12 uniformed security guards threw him out of Rockefeller Center. Within 30 minutes, the mural was covered with paper and a type of wooden screen until it could be repainted. The city was in uproar. The press went nuts. He really overshot the landing on this one. For the entire summer, Diego is a miserable bastard. He was dejected, furious, and couldn't work. He and Frida were getting into so many fights that when her friends saw her, they said her eyes were almost always red from crying. 
Eventually, he pulled himself back together and was able to get to work on a different commission, this time without Frida's help. She stayed home most of the time, nursing her right foot, which was now numb and showing signs of paralysis, and she was still homesick. As outwardly engaging as she was with the press and rich patrons, there hasn't been enough time to properly grieve Matilda or her lost child, and Guillermo's now having increasingly dangerous episodes where he loses his memory and threatens people with knives, and Christina's trying to take care of him, it's a lot. Without Frida's presence on the scaffolds, Diego is spending quite a bit of time with one of his assistants, Louise Nevelson to such an extent that all the other assistants knew what was going on and called Louise, quote, the girl that sticks around Diego. He bought Louise presents, would disappear with her, and not show up to work for entire days, and sometimes wouldn't come home to Frida until the sun rose the next day. New York and America are his element. He's getting his ass kissed by the New York art community. He's famous and people love watching him work. He's pissing off capitalists and running through young American women. And he's spent like half of his life as an expat. Living abroad is normal for him. Frida still can't get the food she wants. Remember the food section of this episode that feels like it was two weeks ago? That problem hasn't been magically solved. By November 1933, Frida is writing back home to her friend Isabella Campos. Quote, Dreaming of my return to Mexico. As soon as I arrive, you must make me a banquet of pulque and squash blossom quesadillas, because just thinking about it makes my mouth water. Don't think I'm forcing this on you and that already from here I am begging you to give me a banquet. It's just I'm reminding you so that you don't look wide-eyed when I arrive. Unquote. The only painting she completed during this trip to New York happens to perfectly encapsulate her feelings. It's called My Dress Hangs There. It's a busy composition, showing the chaos of New York, stuff is on fire, there's cultural vanity represented by a tiny depiction of the actress Mae West next to a church with a dollar sign stained glass window, industry and big gray buildings towering over the masses, the little people struggling through the depression. Instead of a self-portrait, there's only an empty dress. The message couldn't be clearer. The image you have come to associate with me, the Weepil, is here. Here in this country that, besides Chinese babies, really sucks. My heart and my spirit are back in Mexico. Her desire to return home is causing extreme tension in their marriage, and they're getting into blowout arguments in front of their friends. There was one fight about whether moving home to Mexico would be a step in the wrong direction. Diego said it would be like going backward in time, and he picked up one of his oil paintings of a Mexican desert scene and screamed, I don't want to go back to that! And then Frida yelled, I want to go back to that! Causing Diego to take out a knife and cut up his own painting in rage. When Lucienne jumped up and tried to stop him, Frida held her back and said, quote, Don't. He'll kill you. In December 1933, he begrudgingly agreed to go back to Mexico, only to appease Frida. And not wanting to return to Mexico with any money paid by capitalists like a true communist, Diego made sure they spent everything he made in Gringolandia, and they were flat broke. Their friends in New York pooled some money together, including Diego's assistant, Louise Nevelson. Thanks for pitching in, Louise. You've been great and bought them tickets on a ship called the Oriente, and they left to Veracruz by sea by way of Cuba. Finally, back in Mexico City at the turn of the year, they moved into the newly completed connected houses that Diego thought was an interesting bohemian way to live. 
His house was painted pink and was much larger than Frida's house, which was painted blue. Getting acclimated and restarting life was arduous and not smooth. They've been abroad for, I think, over four years at this point, and Diego was furious they were back in Mexico. He was withdrawn, irritable, wasn't painting, and had legitimate health issues that were compounded by hypochondria. Without him working, their lack of income was a problem, and Frida's health issues are becoming more acute, causing financial strain as well as taking an emotional toll. Shortly after they got back, she went in for foot surgery, and they're trying to alleviate the connective tissue strain, nerve damage, deal with the ongoing sores that aren't healing, trying anything to save the foot. This is the first of many foot surgeries. She also had emergency surgery to have her appendix removed. The first half of 1934 was a barrage of health issues. With Diego emotionally checked out, the one person who she needed to rely on happened to be the one person who needed her too, her sister Christina. Now as adults, they find themselves needing to support and be there for each other more than ever. They're no longer trying not to laugh while Matilda forces them to say prayers before dinner. The stakes are much higher as adults. Christine is trying to raise two kids and care for Guillermo, the father who never paid much attention to her, her husband ran off, and Frida's husband is currently emotionally gone, being a pouty baby, and between her spine and foot, her body is failing at a quicker rate. To make matters more complicated, Frida found out she was pregnant again. It's an open question as to whether this pregnancy was intended or not. It depends on who was asking who and when. It's unclear. Many family and friends said Frida was well aware of how quickly Diego could drop her by the wayside and take up with someone more physically able or someone who didn't challenge him at all. Having a baby would be a way to ensure she was tied to him. Some say it was an accident. We don't know. What we do know is Diego was enraged by Frida getting pregnant again. He was so scared of losing her after the miscarriage in Detroit, he forbade her from conceiving again and was cruel to Frida about having a baby. It didn't matter if Dr. Pratt was correct medically, it was still risky. She'd be rolling the dice with a pregnancy. Without Diego's support, there was really only one option. Frida knew she had to get an abortion, and she went and got one. The doctor then told her she needed to stop having penetrative sex for a while. It was necessary to heal. That's the priority, and getting pregnant again was the last thing she needed. She took the doctor's advice, putting a moratorium on sex, penetrative sex at least, with Diego for the foreseeable future. Condoms were around, I just don't see Diego as the guy who'd be cool with condoms. You would think Diego is in his own version of hell. He can't have sex with Frida. He's back in Mexico where he doesn't want to be, torn away from fighting for workers' rights after four years of success that supported his theories. He should be in hell. Yet his mood is beginning to improve. The swagger is back. He's more boisterous. Frida is hyper-aware of Diego's moods, spending years trying to anticipate their swings. When he's upset and angry, manage him out of that. If he's in a good mood, she feels safe to be in a good mood. He is in a great mood right now. Given how differently he'd been acting toward her after she got back from Mexico, how mad he is that she was pregnant again, it doesn't make sense. He should be complaining and storming around the house. This good mood, the swagger, it has nothing to do with Frida or being in Mexico. That's alarming. 
We've spent enough time with Diego to know what this swagger means. He's having another affair. It's the rinse and repeat. She's dealt with his affairs. After years of being his wife, you know that's part of the package. It's bad enough that he's having an affair after the sheer amount of loss and pain Frida has suffered during these last few years. This affair is unlike anything before. When Frida said she had two great accidents in her life, Diego being the second, this is what she was referring to. Nobody knows when the affair began. The best estimate is summer of 1934, when Diego began having an affair with Frida's sister, Christina. On the heels of unimaginable sadness, torment, and pain, Frida experiences the ultimate betrayal, and it crippled her. She breaks down, cuts off all of her hair, she is destroyed. The chain of events in this episode, in her life, to even get to this moment, I don't know how many people could mentally survive that. I don't know if I could. Much like the first accident, this is a turning point in her life, and things will never be the same. What she does with this and how she responds, both artistically, politically, intimately touching and changing people's lives on a large and small scale, that begins now, at rock bottom. We know about Frida Kahlo because of what she does next. We'll learn why there are movies, books, and shirts. And for some of you listening, those I admittedly envy, the Dr. Leo Alesser types, her triumph will be enough. The rest of her story is uplifting and powerful and joyfully sad. But if you're like me, and there's a small part of you that likes the cheap dopamine hit that comes with somebody getting even, perhaps you feel like Diego needs to be knocked down a peg or two. And sometimes, sometimes you feel like a little revenge is okay. I think you're going to like the next episode. Is that petty? Maybe. Do I care? No. This was a sad episode, and I appreciate everyone for sticking with me through it. The next episode will feel a lot different. We are going to have some fun. There will be empowerment. There will be revenge. There will be monkeys named Fulang Chang and Kaimito de Guayabal. And there will be espionage. Until next time, everyone, thank you so much for listening, and take care. <laughs> Se apartan de mí Dos besos llevo en el alma llorona Que no se apartan de mí El último de mi madre llorona Y el primero que te di El último de mi madre